0: Well, we're thankful for our youth choir and rejoice for that song and encouragement to understand that the Lord who rules the universe is greater than any any sin in this world, anything that dwells in our own heart. Well, this morning we have a special joy to uh, have a guest preacher this morning, Pastor John Glass, who was born in Paris but raised in Geneva um, and then went to, came to the United States, went to seminary at a Talbot Seminary out in Los Angeles, and then returned to Geneva to um, plant a church there. and pastoring the, it's a French name, but the English translation would be the Evangelical Bible Church of Geneva, something along those lines. If it's French, who knows? Um, <laughs> so he doesn't often get to preach in English, so we're, we're glad to have him this morning. Uh, he and his wife, Meg, who's, who's here. Meg, you can give us a little wave, thank you. Um, they have been a, a special joy to my own family. Deidre got to go spend time with them many years ago uh, in Geneva, and in fact, they, they put her to work uh, doing wallpaper in their house, if I recall correctly. Um, and it was an encouragement to their own heart. We've enjoyed uh, knowing their kids uh, who attended the master's university while Deidre and I were in Los Angeles and, and knowing them through the years uh, in fact, our youngest daughter, Geneva, is named after, of course, a city where, where John and Meg are, and that's because Geneva really represents the power of the light to penetrate the darkness. You know, the, Europe is in such darkness in the 1500s, and yet through Calvin's bringing the Reformation to Geneva, the light really shattered the darkness and turned the world upside down there with John Knox, and it just became a, a beacon of gospel hope, what the gospel can do in a dark world. and um, And of course, Geneva has fallen back into spiritual darkness now. It's, you know, the church that John pastors is just about the only evangelical church in Geneva. Um, He he mentioned this morning it's the the biggest church in Geneva, but there's more people in our choir, it seems like, that are in his his church. I'm thankful for your ministry, Uh, John. We've named our daughter in the same light that she would be a light to a dark world. And we know that's what you're doing in Geneva. So thank you for your faithfulness, Meg. Thank you for. For being here as well today. John, would you come bring us the word?
1: Eh bien, bonjour. Ah, il y a des Français par ici. Alors, si vous parlez français, d'accord, si vous comprenez le français, j'aimerais que vous leviez la main. If you speak French, I'd like for you to raise your hand. Thank you, I'm recruiting, d'accord. C'est super. Je suis content que vous soyez là. C'est excellent. I will not continue in French. Anyway, you know, in all three services, you got a bunch of French people. You must you get a French club going or something. That's really cool. Anyway, thank you so much. It's a great honor to be here today. Jesse, thanks for the invitation. And Deidre, it was indeed fun having you, what, 18 years ago or so? Yeah. So this is an amazing thing. I don't even realize this. Deidre has been to Geneva. Guess who has not been to Geneva? (laughs) So this is an official public invitation. You're invited to Geneva. Please come and preach the word in Geneva. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, you're coming. Thank you so much. Now hurry up because we're almost done planning our church, so we may leave, okay? So you need to hurry up. So we'd love to have you guys back. That'd be great. Anyway, it is really great to be here, and thank you so much for the honor of being able to preach the word. So this morning, uh, the the title of my sermon is this. One verse, five minutes, and a little bit of courage. I don't know if you're like me, but I get super nervous when I am about to share the gospel with someone. Now, you think that's kind of weird. I'm a professional evangelist, in a way. I'm a missionary. I get paid to do that. And yet, every time the opportunity presents itself, I get scared. I don't want to wimp out, right? So we're doing group therapy this morning, okay? Because if you're like me, if you get a little like tongue twisted and nervous when you would think about even sharing the gospel, I would like to help us all today just get over that barrier, okay? So my sermon's gonna have two parts. First of all, I'm going to tell you my story, my testimony of how the Lord led me to Christ. And then <clears throat> I would like to go to Acts chapter 8, and exposit the text of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. And I'm going to put those two stories together, and we're going to draw out of all that three key principles for effective evangelism. And it won't be scary. I hope, this is a whole idea, that this will really be exciting, and that this will get you motivated to say, you know what? I can do this. It's not that complicated, okay? So that's my, my goal, and we'll see what happens. So let me just start by telling you my story. So actually I was a born of American parents. My father was from Colorado, my mother from Oklahoma, and I was born, my bad dad was a businessman, and he moved to Europe in 1955, and so I was born in Paris along with my brothers in 55, in 56. Three months after my birth, my parents moved to Geneva, Switzerland, and that's where I was raised. I was raised as a non-Christian. I spoke English and French, that's why I'm bilingual. We attended the Episcopalian Church of Geneva. What I remember is a coffee, great coffee. Now that's about all I remember about that church. And so I was raised there, and by the time I needed to go off to school, my parents sent me to boarding school. I went to an English boarding school in Switzerland, then on to the Lawrenceville Prep School in New Jersey, and then on to Syracuse University in upstate New York. My goal was to be an international businessman, and so I studied Spanish language and literature to be trilingual, and then a business degree so that I could go do my business and make my millions. Well, the Lord had different plans because... After my freshman year, my freshman year was kind of a brutal year. It was the hippie days of the 70s, so I had long hair, smoking a lot of dope. I was living a life that I shouldn't have been living, but I was just having fun, you know, going through college. And yet, during that first year of college, I began to sense that there was something missing in me. There there was a void, and I didn't know what it was. So I thought, well, maybe the best thing to do is to take a year off. We are kind of travel addicts in our family. And I thought, I'm just going to go travel and see if I can figure out what life is all about. So I took a year off in 1976, went back to Geneva. I worked for a while, saved my money, and so I took all my savings, and my budget was going to be $3 a day. Now, in those days, you can go a lot further on three bucks than today, okay? So, I um, took my backpack, put about 15 pounds of stuff in it, toothbrush, toothpaste, passport, money, and I took my backpack, and on June 23rd, 1976, went down to the train station. By the way, my mom thought this was a great idea. She was really go, 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 go see the world. So I got on the train and for the first month, this is what I did. If you're looking at the map, I went from Switzerland through Germany, Austria, Hungary, Romania, Yugoslavia, Greece. My goal, go to Greece and get a tan. <laughs> Believe it or not, I can get tan. So I got tanned. It took a while. Okay, that's why I stayed six weeks. About the fifth week I got tanned. And then I had this like bleached blonde hair. I look so cool. Okay. I did. I look cool. But I was so empty. I was void inside. Living the life of a king, sleeping on the beaches, having a blast. But there was just something missing. in me. So a guy said, hey, you need a job. I said, okay. He said, you need to go to Israel and work in a kibbutz, like a farm. I said, okay, so I went. So I went to Israel. Next morning, I'm at Kibbutz Betashita in Israel and they put me in the olive groves and there I am at 4 a.m. picking olives and that was a blast for about two days. And I realized nothing was cutting it. I was having this life crisis at 19 years old. Nothing was cutting it. So I went, left the kibbutz and I went down to Jerusalem and I bought a book and it said, You got to go see the garden tomb. This is one of the two places they believe Jesus was uh, buried. So I thought, okay. So I went. And I'm a non believer, of course. You know, so so I, I, I'm early. I'm an early morning guy and I'm the first one there. They open the door, pay, go in, and boom the tomb of Jesus is right there in front of me. And I'm going, whoa. It's like the tomb of Jesus right there. So I walk inside the tomb of Jesus. I'm looking around in the tomb of Jesus. Man, I get cold chills over my whole body. Thinking, this is like weird, you know? So I walk out, go over to the right, Golgotha. This is a skull mountain, and there's a sign. that says, and this is where Jesus was crucified. And there I got overwhelmed with emotion and began to weep uncontrollably. But I didn't know why. So I wiped my tears away, left, and I thought, ah, what now? So I went down south and stayed another month or so in Israel and I met a guy and he said, hey, John, if you really want to know what life is all about, you've got to go to Asia. I thought, cool, I'm going. So I left Israel, went back to Greece, up to Turkey, to Istanbul. So if you're looking at the map, this is Europe. This is Asia. There's the bridge, Istanbul. Okay, so in those days when people were going back and forth, all those countries were open, there was these huge parking lots in Istanbul and there was a bright blue bus and it said, riders wanted for India $40. I thought, sweet deal, 40 bucks to go to India. Now, I didn't know where India was, so I bought a map, okay. <laughs> and I thought, whoa, long trip. I said, this is cool. So I paid my 40 bucks, got on the bus, There were about 15 15 or 20 people, they're all going to Nepal for drugs, okay? Big blue Mercedes, old bus, we had to push it to start it. But anyway, so I got on the bus and for the next six weeks, okay, we went through Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India. A lot happened on that trip. (laughs) Do you have six hours? No, just kidding. We got busted for drugs in Herat, Afghanistan, threatened to put us in jail, scariest day of my life. And that's when I realized, John, what are you doing with your life? We went on, didn't, didn't actually get busted beyond that. Went to New Delhi, got to India, and all my friends pulled out syringes and began you know, shooting up with heroin and stuff. And I thought, uh-uh, that is not me. We all have this conscience bar and mine was flashing big time. And I knew that was not right, that was not for me. So I got off the bus in New Delhi, they went on to Nepal, and I was now about, been gone about five months and, you know, then you're hit with the poverty in New Delhi. And uh, especially in those days, you know, and just people everywhere sleeping on the streets and cows everywhere and bikes everywhere and Indians with red dots everywhere. I mean, it really, it's just really kind of an interesting place. And, and I was, like, overwhelmed with the poverty. And I thought, oh, man, I, I just can't figure this out. Is God there? God not there? People? How, how do you work all this out? I had no idea. So I took my savings, and I always had enough money for a plane ticket home. So I said, I'm going home. So I bought a plane ticket. I was leaving the next day. And I was walking down Janpath Avenue in New Delhi. And I saw a guy. He was a European guy with hair down a ear. And he was handing out pieces of paper to everybody. He was a missionary. So I didn't know what a missionary was. I'd never seen one in my life. I didn't know what that was. So he was just a really nice guy. So we started talking. He said, hey, John, do you want to go and get a Coke? I said, sure, I'll go get a Coke. So we went and had a Coke. And then in a few minutes, he said this to me. John. Can I show you one verse in the Bible? <sighs> oh, ho, ho. I knew Christians back at Syracuse, okay? They all looked like me, okay? They all had suits and ties, short hair. They all had Bibles and they all went to churches, you know, and I thought, ugh, that is just totally not me. I said, I don't know. He says, then he said this. Now, folks, try this sometime. No, I don't want to hear a verse in the Bible. So he said, John, this is... Is the best seller in the history of the world. You need to know one verse. I said, okay. Fatal okay. <laughs> so he took his Bible and he opened it to John 3.16, Never heard of it in my life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I said, okay. He said, John, let's analyze the verse. (laughs) So I said, okay. Second fatal. Okay. So he says, for God so loved the world. What does the word world mean? I said, well, the world, world, the word world means world, everybody. He goes, exactly. He says, Chinese, Peruvians, Senegalese, Argentinians, Swiss, Americans. You could actually substitute your name. For God so loved John. He loved you. Hmm. For God so loved John that he gave his only begotten son. He said, who's that? I said, I don't know. Context. Jesus Christ. Whoa. Flashback. I had just a couple of months before been inside the tomb of Jesus Christ and I'd stood at Golgotha weeping. Suddenly, it's like this verse just jumped out of the page at me and there was historical context to it. It's like I could see it. For God so loved John that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who died and rose again. Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. Jesus Christ, totally holy, who took the sins of men, died died my death so that I would gain his righteousness. He said, For God so loved John that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but to have eternal life. And then he said to me, John, this verse says you got a choice. One of two choices here. Number one, you can reject that. You can reject Jesus Christ, reject the cross, reject Golgotha, reject his sacrifice, reject his blood. And the Bible says you will perish. A holy God will judge you because the wages of sin is death. You will die physically and you will die spiritually. You will be cut off for all eternity from a holy God and suffer for it. You have to pay for your own sin. That's what it says. You will perish. For God so of John that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So you can perish, or what the verse says is you can believe and receive eternal life. You can recognize your sin, recognize that you are under the wrath of God for your sin, repent from the sin, realize I hate that sin. And then let Jesus Christ by faith invite him to wash that sin away. John the Baptist said, right? John 1, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said, He will remove your sin, all of it, past, present, and future, and give you, according to the verse, eternal life. That's what it says. Then he said, What do you want to do? Man, my heart was pounding. I knew I was a sinner. I knew that. And deep down, I, I wanted forgiveness, but I loved my sin. And I got scared. I got up and I walked out. The guy paid, walked out, came after me, followed me, said, John, this is your last chance. Repent now. And trust Christ. And I said, okay. So right then and there, in the street in New Delhi, cows everywhere, people, bikes everywhere. I bowed my head and I said, Jesus Christ, if you can really do this, if you can really wash my sin away, if you can really give me eternal life, do it. Now. No thunder, no voice from heaven, no lightning, but at that instant, ladies and gentlemen, the God of the universe invaded my little heart. And I was forgiven of all my sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. At that instant, all of it, past, present, future, I was declared righteous. And I was given eternal life. I knew something radical had happened. I just didn't know what it was. I said, thank you, goodbye. And folks, I've never seen that guy again. I don't know who he is. I know he's Dutch. I know he had long hair. I've never seen him. I don't know his name. And you know what? That guy has no idea what happened to me. He has no idea that I have now been a missionary for 33 years following his example. He has no clue. Why? Why am I a missionary? Because one day that man took one verse 5 minutes with a little bit of courage and he told me the gospel of Jesus Christ and it forever changed my life. Oh Next day, I got on the airplane. I went back to my hotel, by the way, gave all my drugs away. Next day, I got on the airplane, Try to share what I'm believing to this guy. He's a Muslim. It's like, I know what I'm talking about, and he just thinks I'm totally crazy. So I get off the plane in Goa, and I go down to this place in Goa, and I, I, I meet some other missionaries down there, and they train me for like a month. And then from there, I go back to Geneva. My poor mom, you know, your, your son leaves. It's like hippie, comes back, Jesus fanatic. Whoa, you know. <laughs> But uh, this one really stuck. And um, then I went back to Syracuse, and I got to Syracuse, and I, I wanted Christians. I didn't know a Christian in the whole country. So I didn't know what to do, so I just called the operator. I said, hello. So she said, hello, operator. I said, hello. Hi, I said, uh, my name is John, and I'm looking for some Christians. <laughs> I did. <laughs> and so she goes, do 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 one moment, please, okay? So she gives me a list of all these groups and the one that sounded the coolest was a group called Campus Crusade for Christ, okay? And I just thought, how cool is this? And Crusade, so I, I went to their other meetings and they had all these training programs and I ended up just going to them all the time, did all the Bible studies, and I'm going to Panorama City Beach, I think it was, went to Fort Collins and for all their training, got really excited. They're into evangelism, you know, so I liked evangelism, so I did that. And then, uh, then I graduated from college and I had to get a job. So I got a job, and I got a job. Actually, I got a job as a flight attendant with Pan Am, and one day I was at the airport in Kennedy Airport, and I ran into the most beautiful flight attendant who's a Christian in the history of mankind, and I married her right there. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So from there, we went out to California, did my seminary training, and then I thought to myself, can you believe it, John? You were raised in Geneva, Switzerland, the city of Calvin, never heard the gospel once. I said, that's wrong. There's just something wrong about that scenario. So I asked the Lord, can we just go back? So we've now been back 33 years. We were 10 years in Paris and now 22 years in Geneva, and we just plant churches. So if you come tonight, I'm going to show some PowerPoints of the churches and things we've done there. It's been really very exciting, but man, there's a lot more work, and we need some good preachers, Jesse, okay, who will just come and preach one day. Go with me to, to Acts chapter 8. Let me, let me bring this um, bring, bring us the Word here because I want to tie this story That God, the way God changed me, with another amazing story about the radical conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, okay, in Acts chapter 8. And what I would like to try and do this, this morning is to draw out three simple principles, okay, that everybody can apply really in their lives, you'll see three simple principles of effective evangelism. And I pray that you'll grab these and that you'll really be motivated and encouraged by these and that this would really um, help you just think a little more evangelism, okay? So here's the, let me just read verse 26. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, Arise and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. And he arose and went. Okay, here's the first principle. The first principle of effective evangelism is this, the preparation of a messenger. There must be a messenger for evangelism to take place. This is what happens, you see, but an angel of the Lord spoke to a man named Philip, and he says to him, go and rise and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road, and he arose and went. Folks, you see, before ministry can happen, before evangelism can happen, God needs the right messenger. Think about this. Could God take the stars of the sky at night and write John 3.16 in the language over every country where they see the stars? Could God do that? Yes. Does he do that? Why not? It'd be so much simpler. Ah, I'll tell you why not. Because Matthew 28 gives us the way God intended evangelism to take place. And in verse 19, Jesus says to his disciples, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. See, disciples are called to make disciples. In Mark 16, preach the gospel to every creature. See, God has always wanted evangelism to be done by people. That is his plan. Okay, question, what kind? What kind of people? What kind of messengers does he want? Well, that's interesting. Well, since we're in Acts 8, all you got to do is go back two chapters because Philip appears for the first time in Acts chapter 6. You remember the story. Jerusalem church is born. It's growing like crazy. Thousands of people come to Christ. Then there's a crisis. Churches didn't grow. They usually have crises of some kind. This one is that these Hellenistic Jews, ladies, women, widows, were not being fed. That was the problem. And it was an important problem because the elders grouped people around and they asked to find seven men to deal with this problem. And it says in verse three, but select from among you, Acts 6, 3, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And number two, Philip. There's our guy. There's our guy. Okay. It's interesting. So what kind of man is Philip? Well, verse 3 tells us he had a good reputation. What does that mean? A a reputation is what people say about you when you're not around. He had a good one. That's good. Number two, he was full of the Holy Spirit. Verse 3. That means his life was controlled by Christ and his spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He lived a holy life. Number, verse 3 also says he was full of wisdom. In French, when you say to a child, ah, he's obedient, we don't say he's obedient. We don't say, l'enfant est obéissant. We say, l'enfant est sage. The child is wise. Why? Because wisdom is applied knowledge. So he was wisdom, obedient. He was also submissive. In verse 5, notice that when he was proposed to the apostles, he accepted the job. So he was a submissive man, humble, ready to do what the apostle said. He was also humble because in verse 6, he's willing to serve in a small and menial task. People could say, well, I don't really want to serve tables. That's no big big ministry. It didn't matter. He was submissive, humble, ready to serve anywhere. By the way, that is how you build a good reputation, by serving, by serving. And it's interesting. Now the church of Jerusalem gets beat up, persecuted. Acts 8, what happens? This is amazing. Therefore, verse 4, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. God had given him the gift of miracles. Verse 12, but when they believed Philip preaching the word, the good news about the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Folks, this guy... Was an amazing guy. What balance? What I like about him most, he's a man of the church and in the church, serving tables, humble, doing what needs to be done. Man, you put him outside the church, this guy is preaching and teaching. It's the balance. Sometimes we get so inside the church that we forget that there's a dying world out there. He was very balanced. And lastly, he was obedient. Verse 26 of chapter 8. The angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. And he arose and went. You know what's amazing about this? He could have said, God, you don't get this. I'm in Samaria. There's like a thriving ministry going on. Look at all the people coming to Christ, and I'm baptizing them all. Lord, you don't get it. God says, I need you in the middle of nowhere, desert road. In the middle of nowhere. So he could have thought to himself, that makes no sense, God. No, but he was submissive and obedient. I've often wondered what it took for that man, the Dutch guy, to be on that street in November 1976 to meet me. And you think, oh, he was a missionary. He must have had a theological degree. Maybe. But he used one verse, five minutes and a little bit of courage. Changed my life. Let me ask you this question. Think about your neighbors, people you work with, unbelievers. Think about the people at the store where you shop. Maybe your student, colleagues, friends. You know what? If God needed a messenger, would he use you? Are you ready? Let me ask you this. Could you use one verse, John three sixteen, to share the gospel clearly, succinctly, and powerfully to someone in five minutes? If you don't, I, I, I beg you to learn how to do that. Because I'm gonna ask you this, do you believe in cold turkey evangelism? Oh yeah, I'm the result of cold turkey evangelism. One verse. It's incredible. So you see, that is actually, that is the first key ingredient to effective evangelism, the preparation of the messenger. But there's a second one. There's a second one. The second key to effective evangelism is the preparation of the recipient. You got a messenger and then you got a recipient. And what we're going to see now is that God prepares the recipient like he prepares the messenger. So what do we know about the recipient? Verse 27. So he arose and went, and behold, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting on his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. And when Philip had run up, he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, No, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. There's a really interesting little story here. So God prepared Philip, but God also actually prepares the eunuch. How? Well, he was being prepared back in Ethiopia, where he came from, but also in Jerusalem. What do we know about him? First of all, he was Ethiopian, verse 27 says, from the country of Nubia, which today is really southern Egypt or Sudan. Secondly, he was a eunuch. He was castrated so as to guarantee sexual irreproachability as a guardian of the king's harem, verse 27. Verse 27 also tells us he was a very important government official. He was a minister of the treasury under Queen Candace, queen of Ethiopia. In other words, he was in charge of all of her money. This is a top government post. Okay? So, probably a very wealthy man, probably had a big entourage with him. He also owned, someone came up to me and told me this, it's true, he owned a scroll, which means he was a very wealthy man. To be able to own a scroll in those days was no small thing. And he could read, so he's educated. He was also a religious man. Verse 27 says that he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Well, that's interesting. He had come for the Pentecost celebrations mentioned in Acts 2. That means he was probably a Gentile proselyte to Judaism. In other words, he was a non-Jew. At one point, got converted to Judaism. And he'd come to celebrate Pentecost in Jerusalem. And so he's going home. He had traveled an enormous distance to come to Jerusalem, and now he's going back. But what's interesting, and this is maybe the most interesting, is that he was a searching man. You see, he was a religious man. He was a worshiper of God. But it's clear from this passage that he's still empty. He is unsatisfied, he's seeking, he's wondering, he's trying to understand the truth. He was worshiping God without really knowing him. You See, Judaism in those days, as we know from Jesus and how he dealt with the Pharisees in Matthew 23, where he blasts them, he says, you're going to hell and you make your proselytes twice as much a sin of hell as you. So Jesus saying, you guys are not teaching the truth and the people that convert to Judaism, you're taking them to hell with you. So this guy was a searching guy. He wanted to know the truth, but he was being led astray. Amazing. And so here he is on his chariot going home, reading the Bible, trying to figure it out. And you know what? It says in verse 31, and he said, well, verse 30, when Philip had run up, he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, no, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. I mean, this is incredible. This guy is searching for the truth, reading the word, and he doesn't get what he's reading. The so 30... Um, 33 years ago, when we got to France, we landed in the town of L'Arbrelle, which is near Lyon. And we were looking for a little apartment. So there was a baker in this little medieval town, just like in the movies. So you get to this bakery, it says Boulangerie, and you open the door, and you hear this bell. Ding, 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 just like the movies, okay? So you walk in, but it's not the movies, it's for real, 3D, okay? And it's like, whoa, the whiff of croissant. (sighs) the croissant, the French bread and pastries, you're going, oh man, you know, there are benefits to being a missionary in France, big time, okay? <laughs> so, so we walk into this little pastry shop and Monsieur Bourricon was his name, comes out, short man, kind of chubby, with a white um, uh, apron and a tuck, they call those, those big white hats. And he says, hello, hello. And we said, hello. And we we're talking in French and we say, yes, we saw the little sign for an apartment and we were wondering if we could see the apartment. He goes, oh, well, this is wonderful. He says, what brings you to town? To which I answer, I'm a pastor. This is how he reacted. Oh! So I go, oh! (laughs) He goes, oh! A second time. I go, oh! Then he says this, no joke. He says, you're a pastor? I say, yes. He says, my wife and I Have just finished reading the entire Bible this year and we understand nothing. No joke. Then he says, Could you explain it to us? (sighs) Inside, I'm going, Yes. (laughs) But of course, I keep my composure with pleasure. Okay. (laughs) I mean, it blew my mind. We'd been there like a week massive invitation so we ended up starting two bible studies with him and his family now i don't know if he ever came to christ he was an older gentleman but i was just thinking wow even in france there are people everywhere looking trying to figure out life folks think of the people around you there are so many people they, they may have been grown up in the church in the bible belt but they don't know the lord and they're confused They're trying to figure it out. They might know the Bible, might not know the Bible. They might have gone to other religions. Maybe they're in cults. Maybe they're just agnostics or atheists. They're just trying to figure it out. Like me. I mean, that was me. And sometimes I wonder, why did God have to take me from Geneva, Switzerland, all the way to New Delhi, India, to save me? I have no idea. Probably I was, I mean, I I kind of mean this. I must have been in some kind of difficult case for God. I don't know, maybe, you know. But what, what I think he was doing, he was actually breaking me and breaking me and breaking me until I was broken, until I realized that I was a sinner and I needed Christ. And the day came, November 1976, when I at last was prepared to receive the truth. So, those are the first two principles. Number one, God prepares the messenger. My question is, are you ready? Are you prepared? Number two, God prepares the recipient. Now, here's the third one. This is the coolest of all. Okay? Effective evangelism. You need the preparation of the messenger. You need the preparation of the recipient. And here you go. You need the preparation of the circumstances. God Puts those two together. See, God gets all the glory because He knows who the messengers are who are prepared. He knows who the recipients are prepared. And that's when He just like puts them together. That's why He says to Philip, Hey, go to this desert road. Philip's going, Well, I, I don't know. Why am I going? No, He just goes. And the Ethiopian eunuch's on his chariot. He has no idea what's going on. So, what's the story here? So, When Philip had run up, so God says run up, verse 30. So so the chariot's going like this. Philip runs up. He's running up. Then he slows down. And now he's walking next to the chariot, okay? He's walking, he's walking. And he listens to what is being read. And he recognizes it, Isaiah 53. Then he says what? Verse 30. Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, well, no, how could I? Unless someone guides me. So he invites him up to come up and sit with him in the passage of scriptures, I already read it, verse 34, and the eunuch answered and said, please tell me of whom does the prophet say this? Hello? This is incredible. God just puts us together. This guy is thirsty and hungry. And they went along the road. Well, verse 35, and Philip opened his mouth and beginning from the Scriptures, he preached Jesus to him with his Bible, no preparation, from Isaiah 53, he preaches Christ to him. And they went along the road and came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Because Philip had said to him, when you get saved, the first thing you need to do is get baptized. So he goes, hey, look, there's water. Can I get baptized? Verse 37, which are not in the better manuscripts, but it's true. And Philip said, if you bleed with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. That's his conversion right there. And they both went down to the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. I mean, what an amazing story, and this is, this is a story that happened to me. God took this Dutch guy, prepared him all the way to New Delhi, India, and then God prepared this guy from Syracuse back to Geneva all the way to New Delhi, and boom, at the right time. Praise the Lord. That's what God does. So, my question to you, ladies and gentlemen, is, and this is our context, we're kind of the messengers, unless you're a recipient this morning. Maybe you're not saved. Maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe today is the day of appointment. Oh, I beg you. I beg you. Don't leave this place without knowing that you are in Christ, that he has forgiven your sin. Just do what I did. Just ask Christ to forgive you, and he will. But if you're a messenger, I ask you, you take one verse, John 3.16. Five minutes. Oh, and a little bit of courage, okay? Just a little bit of courage. You might see the Lord use you to change lives like never before. So I pray that you will be a John 3.16 power church. Amen? Amen. Amen.
0: Thank you for that encouragement, that challenge, Sean. Let's go to the Lord now and seal these things in our heart. Lord, we're grateful for what we've heard this morning. We're grateful for the songs that we've sung. We're grateful for the opportunity to give. We're grateful for the challenge from your word. And we do pray that you would give us the opportunity to apply that this week, that you would bring us together with people whom you've prepared to hear the gospel. We pray for our neighbors. We pray for co-workers, students, for people next to us in the VRE or on the metro. We pray that our eyes would be opened to the possibilities of evangelism and that you would use us this very week. We pray that as we return next Lord's Day that we would have stories of those who've heard the gospel from our faithfulness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington DC area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.